0: They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. There was a lot of action in the financial markets today, but I want to start by talking about the most relevant to my clients and also to listeners of this podcast when it comes to uh, the financial markets and investing, and that is the huge shakeout in gold and silver today. Really spectacular moves. You know, I had been talking about the potential for gold to move $100 in a single day. Of course, I was always talking about moving up $100. Instead, today the price of gold fell by actually over 100 I think it's down about $120 an ounce as I am recording this podcast a little after the close of the U.S. stock market today. That's about a 6% drop. In the price of gold. But mind you, we're still at 1907. So despite this 6% drop, gold is barely below what was an all time record high until a week or two ago when gold got above 1900 for the first time since 2011. Silver got beaten up even more. It was down about $4.40. I think this is the biggest drop uh, since the uh, Lehman financial crisis. Silver back down to 24.72, but it had its highest close yesterday. Silver was above 29. I think that was the first time it closed with a 29 handle. And so this uh, decline, while substantial, if you look at where silver was a few weeks ago, 24.72 still looks like a a pretty good price. But you got to bear in mind that when it comes to bull markets, historically, the biggest Daily moves are down that's how it happens in a bull market. the opposite in a bear market you get the biggest moves to the upside in 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 bear markets and what the market is doing is trying to flush out the the weaker uh, players when it comes to a bear market uh, it's trying to create some hope and and sucker people back into the market by having a really big rally well in a bull market it's the opposite the market is trying to instill fear in the weaker hands. So you get these spectacular one-day moves in the opposite direction of the primary trend to shake people out, to get the weaker players out of the market so that you can clear away the excess baggage and then continue the trend. So usually in a bull market, you don't get the really, really big up moves until the end of the bull market, right? Near the end, you get kind of a euphoric blow-off top, and then you get these spectacular big moves to the upside. But along the way, the bigger, more dramatic moves in a bull market are to the downside. And that's, I think, exactly what we had today in gold and silver. We had this big move to scare out a lot of the newer buyers who maybe just recently got on board And now they're, you know, they're getting uh, their wrists slapped and now maybe they got stopped out or they're going to sell and they're going to leave the market. In fact, there were a lot of uh, news stories written uh, over the weekend that were negative on gold. I mean, one in particular, there was an opinion piece in Market Watch by Mark Hulbert. The title of the article is, Gold is a Foolish Place to Put Your Money Right Now If You Check the Facts. Now, unfortunately, this guy Mark Holbert didn't actually check the facts. Had he done that, he may have come to the opposite conclusion. Basically, he based his entire analysis on how bad it was if you bought gold at the peak of the rally uh, in 1980 when gold was at 800, 850, or if you bought the peak of the rally in 2011 when gold was at 1900. And he pointed out how much money investors lost who bought those previous peaks and basically implying that, well, if you buy now, you're going to suffer the same fate. Well, the error that he is making is to assume that $2,000 gold in 2020 is the same as $1,900 gold in 2011 or $800 gold in 1980. It's not. If you go back to those prior bull markets Gold began the bull market in the 70s at $35 an ounce. It had a 20-fold, actually more than 20-fold increase before it peaked out at over $800 an ounce or $850, wherever it got to. Then the bull market uh, from 2001 to 2011, that 10-year bull market, gold went from about 260 all the way up to 1900 So that was about a six-fold increase in the price of gold. We're not even close to that type of rise in this bull market. I mean, even if you start the bull market from the 2015 low of uh, 1,050, we've almost doubled off of that low in the price of gold. So this rally pales in comparison to the rally that we had that peaked out in 2011 or that peaked out in in 1980. So to say that people who are buying gold today at 2000, it's the same as people buying it at 1900 in 2011 or 850 in 1980 is this complete nonsense. I mean, we're not even close, I don't believe, to the peak of this market. I mean, at some point, this bull market is going to peak and somebody is going to buy the high. But nobody who bought 2000 bought the high. Right? We're going much, much higher for all of the fundamental reasons that this guy, Mark Hubert, wants to ignore. He wants to push aside everything that's actually happening with uh, the Fed and the money printing and the deficits and uh, and all the macroeconomic inflationary monetary policy that has created the most bullish fundamentals for gold, really, in the history of gold. He wants to ignore all that and just focus on the two prior peaks of major bull markets and basically say, hey, look how much money you lost if you bought at the peak of those markets. And so you better not buy now because he has concluded that this is a peak when there is no evidence at all that would suggest that this is a peak. And in fact, I saw a tweet from Paul Krugman. And, and Krugman was actually referencing one of the few articles that was actually favorable. It was an opinion piece in the New York Times that was more favorable to the price of gold. But in that article, it addressed inflation as one of the drivers for gold. And Krugman basically tweeted that the article was wrong and that inflation has got nothing to do with it. Krugman said that investors are not buying gold because they're worried about inflation. He said they're buying gold because bond yields are low. Now, first of all, you know, maybe what Krugman should do is ask some of the people who are buying gold why they're buying it. Because I know he's not buying any. So how does he know why the people who are buying gold are buying it? Well, how does he know their motivation? He's just guessing because he's not buying any himself, right? So he's trying to figure out why other people are buying it. Now, since Krugman is convinced there's no inflation, he just assumes that gold buyers are are of the same opinion, right? That they're making the same mistake that he is, and they're not. But since he believes that everybody else must accept the idea that there's no inflation, well, then they must be buying gold for another reason, because it can't be inflation, because inflation doesn't exist. And so the reason that Krugman is gave is that, well, it's just these low bond yields. That's why people are buying gold because the yields on bonds are so low. Well, they're just, you know, they might as well just buy gold, right? That's what he's saying. But what Krugman is missing is the reason that bond yields are low. Why are they so low? Is it because we have a glut of savings because Americans are just saving all this money and there's not a lot of debt? Nobody wants to borrow. And so we have a, you know, a natural low rate of interest? No, the reason that bond yields are so low is because the Federal Reserve is inflating the money supply, printing all this money to buy up all these bonds. So inflation is the reason that bond yields are low. And that's what Krugman doesn't get. Because inflation not only explains why gold prices are going up, it also explains why bond yields have gone down. So inflation is responsible for both the drop in bond yields and the rise in gold prices, Yet Krugman can't make the connection for either one. He thinks that somehow bond prices are just magically falling because, you know, the economy is weak and because bond prices are rising and yields are low, well, investors are buying gold. He is not able to make the connection that inflation is the driving factor behind both phenomenon. And so in effect, Krugman, without even knowing it, is admitting that it's inflation that's causing gold to go up. Because he's saying inflation is going up because bond yields are falling without understanding that it's inflation that is the reason that bond yields are as low as they are. So yes, it is inflation that's driving the price of gold and it's going to continue to drive the price of gold higher despite the reaction that we got in the market today uh, to the PPI numbers. And in fact, before I get to that, I want to talk about what started the gold sell-off Uh, Because basically there was a one-two punch today that was delivered uh, to the gold and silver market. The first punch happened early in the morning before, you know, the U.S. markets opened. And we got news out of Russia, right, that they have a COVID vaccine. Right. They're like the first ones now, or I don't know if it's first or whatever it is, but they've got a new COVID vaccine, right? And every time somebody uh, comes out with news of a COVID vaccine, everybody gets excited. So the stock market rallied. We had an over 300-point rally in the Dow. All the foreign markets were way up. In fact, all of the stocks that we own, we had a huge day for all of our non-gold stocks that we own for our clients at Euro Pacific. I mean, some huge, big, big day. Uh, in in these stocks that were not gold stocks. And and part of that might have been, you know, from the the COVID vaccine. But so many people have attributed gold's rise to COVID, right? And that's one of the reasons I've been saying that this bull market is so unloved, because so many people are suspicious that as soon as we get a COVID cure, a COVID vaccine, that gold's going to crash, because gold is rising in reaction to the COVID epidemic and the problems that COVID is causing and that we solve those problems with a vaccine or a cure. And therefore, as soon as we cure COVID, uh, we're going to kill uh, the bull market or the speculative mania, maybe the bubble in, in gold. And so that, that COVID vaccine announcement initially caused the price of gold to drop uh, maybe uh, 60, 70 bucks, something like that, or 60. I forget exactly where it was. But this is all a bunch of nonsense. Gold and silver are not up because of COVID. Now, COVID is part of the reason, but it's not the actual cause. You see, what's happened is governments, and in particular central banks, they have responded to COVID by printing a lot of money, right? Governments are running big deficits and central banks are printing the money to monetize those deficits, especially the Federal Reserve, And so it is the money printing. It is the inflation that central banks are creating in order to monetize government debt that is a response to COVID that is helping to drive the gold price higher. So it's not COVID itself that is bullish for gold. It is the government's response. It is central bank and Federal Reserve policy in response to COVID that is very bullish for gold. Now, some people might want to argue, okay, You know, you're arguing a distinction without a difference because once there's a COVID cure, well, then the central banks can normalize policy, right? They could just let interest rates go up uh, and they can shrink their balance sheet. Impossible. That's never going to happen. See, what people don't seem to get is because we've run up all of this debt during the COVID emergency when everybody was worried about getting COVID, once we do get a cure or a vaccine, if this actually happens, the cure doesn't cure the debt, all the debts that we incurred you know, while we were waiting for a cure or a vaccine, those debts are still there. So the Federal Reserve and the government are levering the economy to the hilt before we get the cure. And if we get it, that doesn't change anything about that debt. So our financial position has been permanently weakened as a result of our initial response to COVID-19. It doesn't matter if we get a vaccine or a cure because we can't undo that damage. We can't get rid of that debt. That debt is going to exist even if we eradicate COVID. We have all that debt and we have to service it. And there's no way the Federal Reserve will be able to allow interest rates to rise or shrink its balance sheet, right? after there's a COVID vaccine. It's impossible. So we've already done the damage. It doesn't matter. The monetary policy is already fatal, even if we cure the underlying disease. And the markets still don't get that. So none of that matters. The damage has been done and the deficits are going to explode anyway. Remember, we were headed for a massive recession, even if we never got COVID-19. And so even when we cure it, we're simply going to go back to the recession that we were going to have anyway, only with a lot more debt because we incurred all that extra debt while we were fighting COVID. So it has permanently weakened uh, the economy. We have a much bigger debt bubble as a result of the mistakes that we've already made in the past, regardless of what happens in the future uh, in the the medical, solving the medical problem of COVID, right, the financial problems that were self-inflicted during that interim period between the onset of the disease and the development of any kind of vaccine or any kind of cure, that damage is permanent. So the markets should not be selling off gold and silver every time somebody thinks they have a, a vaccine for COVID, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Monetary policy is going to continue to be easy. The Fed is going to keep printing money. They're going to keep interest rates artificially low. Inflation is going to run out of control, and the price of gold is going to go way up. But then, later in the morning at 8:30 uh, New York time, we got the release of the producer price index. Now, I am expecting these numbers, both PPI and CPI, which we get tomorrow. These numbers are going to continue to get higher and higher. I mean, that's part of my base case. Uh, uh, scenario is, you know, inflation is going to continue to drive both consumer and producer prices higher, even though the official measures don't capture the extent to which prices are rising. uh, They're going to rise and a portion of those rises are going to show up in these government numbers. And so the consensus was for the July PPI to go up by 0.3. And we actually rose by 0.6. So we doubled The consensus forecast, right? This is the biggest jump in wholesale prices in two years. And as a result of that, bond yields really shot up. I mean, they're still really low. The yield on the 10-year rose to 0.658 basis points. And on the 30-year, we went up to 1.348. So still not even 1.4% on a 30-year bond. So still very, very low interest rates, Negative when you account for inflation and even more negative when you account for both taxation and inflation, because remember, you pay a tax, an income tax on the nominal yield and then inflation more than wipes out uh, the after-tax income. But bond yields rose and gold got hammered on the idea that rising bonds, rising interest rates are bearish for gold, but rates are not actually rising what matters to gold is not nominal rates it's real rates and real rates if anything actually went down today because if you assume that the increase in producer prices is a new trend that it's going to continue then inflation as measured by prices is rising faster than the nominal yield on 10 to 30 year treasury so real yields are actually falling despite the increase in nominal yields. But again, the interest rate that really counts when you want to look at whether or not you should hold gold or uh, treasuries is not the yield on the 10-year or the 30-year. It's the yield on overnight money. It's the Fed funds. Because when you buy those long-term bonds, you are taking substantial risk, uh, duration risk, interest rate risk. So what you have to compare gold to is holding T-bills, right? Where you don't have all that risk, right? And short-term rates didn't go anywhere. There was no increase in overnight rates as a result of a hotter than expected PPI. So in fact, short-term rates went down substantially in real terms by an increase in the measured level of price increases, right? Let's call it inflation, uh, you know, knowing that that's not the actual definition. Uh, But if inflation is rising then real short rates are falling. So today's news that PPI, producer prices, rose twice as much as expected is actually bullish for gold, right? Rising inflation is why people are buying gold as an inflation hedge. But this has been a pattern that we've seen for the entirety of gold's bull market. And I have been talking about this mistake every time traders have made it, right? Because this has happened the whole rally all the way up from 1,000 to 2,000, every time we got hotter than expected consumer or producer prices, the immediate knee-jerk reaction was to sell gold on the basis that, well, this is you know higher interest rates. And even the idea that if we have higher inflation, well, now the Fed is going to be forced to fight that inflation by raising rates. But that's not going to happen. I mean, the Fed has already told everybody they don't care about inflation. It doesn't matter what these numbers do. They're not raising rates. They're not even thinking about, thinking about, thinking about raising interest rates. So why are traders worried that a higher than expected PPI number is going to cause the Fed to raise rates? It's not. And it's not going to cause the Fed to shrink its balance sheet. It's never going to happen. So hotter than expected Inflation numbers are always bullish for gold. They're not bearish because the Fed is not going to fight. The Fed is going to surrender. Inflation is going to win, right? It's by default. The Fed can't even put up a fight because fighting is impossible. Because if it ever tries to fight, it's so vulnerable, it immediately loses because of how levered up the economy is. So the markets made two mistakes today to sell off the price of gold. One was somehow that a COVID cure is bearish for gold. And two, the idea that higher inflation numbers is bearish for gold because it's going to cause the Fed to hike rates, right? So both of those are not true. But in today's environment and throw in Reversal Tuesday, I guess it's a Tuesday is a good day to get a reversal in a primary trend. But all that uh, conspired and, and hit these markets. Plus, of course, you know, gold was at a record high. Silver was at a new high for the bull market. We had all these negative stories over the weekend about about gold and silver. People were probably nervous. We had a few newbie Robinhood guys that had decided to buy some SLV and some GLD. But, you know, I think even my son uh, Spencer had asked me if I was nervous that seeing uh, SLV and GLD on the top 20 list for uh, Robinhood, if that was a sign to me uh, that we were near a top, and I and I said to him, I said, you know, by the time we're at a top, it won't just be uh, ETFs uh, that are in on the top of Robinhood. I said the entire uh, top ten or twenty list will be mining stocks. In fact, the top ones will probably be junior uh, silver exploration plays. Right? There were none of those. There are not. There wasn't a single uh, mining stock. That was on the top 20 list. So I, I think in, from a short term, yes, I mean, maybe some of those guys uh, that, that that dipped their toe in the water now, you know, are going to pull it out, uh, but they'll be back because gold and silver are going much, much higher. And so are the mining stocks. They got clobbered again today, too. Uh, you had the GDX down just under 8% gdxj down nine percent on the day so very very big moves but remember all we've gone to done is erase the gains for august so we're pretty much back to where we were at the end of july in both uh gold prices and uh the the gold stocks again i think this is just providing a great entry point uh for new investors who you know haven't gotten on board yet and for people who uh you know, have money in gold and silver, gold and silver stocks. And a few days ago, were upset that they didn't have even more money. Well, now they have a chance to put more money in. Will this correction uh, get a little bigger? It could, you know, but it doesn't really matter uh, because I think the upside potential far outweighs the downside risk in uh, precious metals and in the mining stocks. And it wasn't just uh, precious metal stocks where we had a lot of action today. We had action across the board. In fact, the S&P 500 broke a seven-day winning streak. It had been up for seven consecutive days. So this was the first drop. It was down about 0.8%. It was led lower uh, by the tech stocks. The NASDAQ was down 1.7%, 185 points. This is now the third consecutive day that the NASDAQ has gone down. So maybe we've seen a change in leadership and a change in that trend which potentially could be negative for the entirety of the U.S. stock market. And remember, this was also a reversal. In fact, the Dow, which was up better than 300 points in the morning, closed the day down just over 100 points. So, solid reversals as well on this reversal Tuesday for uh, all those other stocks. You know, Bitcoin, uh, for those of you who are interested in Bitcoin, uh, it got beat up as well today. As I'm recording this, Bitcoin's about 11,200. Per Bitcoin, which is about 800 off the high. We did get above uh, 1200. In fact, let me look and see what the high was for this move. We got to 12,080, I think, is the highest that I see uh, in the last day or two. And so we got a little bit above 12,000, and now we're actually a little bit below 11,200. There is some support around 11,000, maybe more around 10,500. I don't know how how well that support is going to hold. You know, I noticed that on Monday, Grayscale, which operates the the Bitcoin Trust, the Ether Trust, a few of these other cryptocurrency trusts, they launched a new uh, commercial, brand new ad just premiered yesterday. It's running on CNBC, Fox Business, CNN, I think MSNBC, a few of these networks. And remember, these are the guys, Barry Siebert, Uh, I I did a debate with him at uh, the SALT conference back in 2019, which basically coincided with the launch of that drop gold ad campaign back around May 1st of 2019. So that was the initial ad buy that they ran. And I remember at the time saying that I thought it could have been one of the worst timed uh, marketing campaigns because it wasn't just that people should buy Bitcoin. It was that they should drop their gold. They should sell their gold and buy Bitcoin. And not even Bitcoin. You were supposed to buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is even worse than buying Bitcoin. Because if you buy Bitcoin, at least you don't have to pay a storage fee. Uh, Grayscale charges you 2% a year just to babysit your Bitcoin. I mean, what is the point? I mean, if you really like Bitcoin, just go buy it. Just open up an account on Coinbase or whatever and buy yourself some Bitcoin. You don't need to pay you know, Barry Siebert, 2% of your Bitcoin every year, that means what? After five years, you've lost 10% of your Bitcoin. They're gone, right? Because that that's the cost of of being in the trust. So if you like Bitcoin, just buy it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to buy, to buy this trust. Now, I know some people, if it's in an IRA or something, you think, well, you know, this is the only way I can do it. And so they end up buying uh, the GBTC. But, you know, that fee really adds up. You know, I don't know why the fee is so high for a passive fund. I mean, it really should be a lot lower. I mean, you look at the fees on something like a GLD or an SLV, where they're actually storing physical metal, where they actually need to vault it somewhere. Why is it so much cheaper to store actual physical gold and silver than to store Bitcoin? I mean, it should be dirt cheap. So he's just raking in the bucks running this fund. And... uh, you know, he's basically proving the, uh, the saying of uh, P.T. Bardem. There's a sucker born every minute. Uh, we know that because they're buying uh, the grayscale Bitcoin trust. But I thought it was interesting that they're launching this ad campaign again, which this time they're not making fun of gold. The first one was get rid of gold. It's archaic. You know, it- it's out of date. You don't want it. It's a stupid yellow rock. They follow that up later on with another commercial that was bashing gold. This one is not really uh, bashing gold so much as just promoting grayscale and and, and digital currencies. But I thought it was interesting that if you go back to the initial time that this drop gold campaign started, the price of gold is up about 50% since the first day of that campaign. In fact, it was up closer to 60% uh, before today's 6% drop. But even with today's drop, you're still up better than 50% since grayscale advise people to drop gold. That's a big rally to miss. Now, compare that to what happened to Bitcoin or more importantly, the, uh, GBTC. Now, I know that when that ad started on May 1st, GBTC was about $6.60, right? It ended the month of April at six sixty one. So it really started uh, May at 6 60 and so if you compare the price now at 1255 it's double, right? So Sieber could say, oh, it was smart, right? If you followed the advice of my ad campaign, uh, yes, you missed out on a 50% move in the price of gold, but you doubled your money in GBTC, except that would be a very disingenuous argument on behalf of Grayscale because the value or the price quickly ramped up so by the end of the month right we were already at $11.06 by the end of the month by the end of may and by early june the fund was up to $17.40 now that ad continued to run for several months where gbtc in july it had a high of 1717 in august it had a high of 1575 so a lot of people who responded to that ad bought grayscale bitcoin trust at prices much higher than it is now it closed today at 1255 so if you bought it at 1740 because you saw those ads not only did you miss out on now maybe a 40 percent rise in the price of gold because gold was going up too along with the bitcoin trust but had you sold your gold and bought the gbtc trust uh at the highs in July, not only would you have missed out on a 40% rise in the price of gold, but you're actually down 30% on your grayscale trust. So that difference actually is twice as much money. Meaning if somebody had $10,000 in gold and they sold it and put the 10,000 in the Bitcoin trust, the 10,000 would have been worth 14,000 if they left it in gold instead it's worth 7000 because they put it into GBT. See? So the person who didn't drop gold, kept their gold and didn't buy Bitcoin has twice as much money as the person who dropped their gold and bought Bitcoin through the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And so I think pretty much most people, yes, if you if you bought Grayscale Trust the very first day the commercial ran and you sold your gold, yes, you profited, right? But that commercial was running for three or four months. You know, I tried to get Barry Siebert to tell me exactly how long uh, the the ad ran. I, I had like an exchange with him on, on Twitter because he came out with that BS about, you know, where the price was the day the campaign started. And they basically uh, coincided the launch of that campaign with a big pump. They pumped up the price of Bitcoin and then they dumped it on the people who were dumb enough to buy into that marketing campaign. That's what it was. It was a giant pump and dump. And they're trying to do the same thing again. But I asked him to tell me exactly how long the ad ran because I was going to go on Bloomberg and I was going to run the weighted average price of the GBTC during the entire run of the ad and compare that with the average price of gold during the time the ad ran to determine exactly how much worse off everybody was on average, right? Who actually followed the bad advice of the drop gold campaign and sold their gold to miss out on a big rally and bought the uh, the grayscale trust and lost money on that. But he wouldn't give me the time period, so I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, but I'm sure the reason he doesn't want me to have the data is because he knows uh, that it's gonna it's gonna prove that I'm right and that the people who listen to that ad campaign are worse off for having done so. And I think the same thing is going to happen again. Uh, I don't think this ad campaign is going to be as successful. In fact, you know, I watched the commercial and the the main mistake that they make, and of course, you know, people make this mistake because a lot of people who uh, promote Bitcoin uh, really don't understand money and currency and the difference between it. Uh, I mean, if they really did, they wouldn't be buying Bitcoin. They'd be buying gold. But according to this commercial, gold is currency, right? The, the, the commercial starts off by saying initially we had barter and then we had currencies uh, like gold. Well, uh, there's an important step that they missed out on is that before we had currencies, we had money. Gold is not a currency, Gold is money. So are seashells, right, or wampum or, or salt or, you know, because gold or money has to be an actual commodity. It is a marketable commodity, a liquid commodity that people will accept in exchange for other commodities. So we went from barter to money. We went from money to currency. That's what a lot of these Bitcoin guys don't understand. Currency is a money substitute. But currency doesn't have any value unto itself. It derives its value from the gold that backs it up. So a gold coin is actual money. But if you have a note issued by either a private bank or a central bank, those notes were initially obligations to pay real money. I went over this when I talked about the the history of money in the United States. So currency was backed by real money. And it derived its value from the money that backed it up. So this commercial that they're running is mischaracterizing gold as a currency. It's not. Gold is money. Currency would be a a piece of paper that is issued by, again, a government or a, a private bank that can circulate in place of money that derives its value from the money that backs it up. So the real evolution, we went from barter. Then we went to money. Then we went to currency, right, backed by real money. And then we went to fiat money, which is currency backed by nothing, right? So currency that doesn't derive its value from real money that backs it up, but from faith, from government decree, right, from an edict. This is legal tender. And now people have confidence in it. And that's where the so-called value comes in. So the commercial missed, you know, just skipped over that part. And then it somehow holds uh, digital currencies as if there's some kind of big improvement on fiat currencies when they're not—they're—they're they're, they're fiat as well. They're not backed by anything. If there was a digital currency that was backed by real money, gold, then it could work. It could function as a money substitute. But that's not what they are. And Bitcoin can never be actual money like gold because Bitcoin is not a commodity like gold. You can't do anything with Bitcoin like you can do something with gold. So gold will never. Bitcoin will never be uh, money. And, it's, and it will never be legitimate currency because it's not backed by anything. So all it is is fiat cryptocurrency. So you've got two types of fiat. You can buy government paper fiat or you can buy digital fiat. But neither one of them is an improvement on real money, which is gold and silver. I wanted to talk a little bit, though, about this court ruling out of California Uh, when it comes to Uber and Lyft. And I've talked about these two companies several times over the years on my podcast. The latest is a California court basically siding with the uh, uh, attorney general there in California that the drivers need to be categorized as employees, that uh, Uber and Lyft are violating California labor law by misclassifying drivers as independent contractors and that they're actually employees and they need to have that status. And Uber and Lyft need to provide all of the various mandated benefits the overtime pay, the, the sick leave, or uh, the, the workman's comp, or the unemployment insurance, like right? that. These workers are entitled to all of the benefits uh, that they have mandated uh, that employers provide their workers. Now, of course. The benefits don't come for free, right? Whenever the government mandates that an employer provide benefits to their workers, the workers aren't getting something for nothing. They're just getting those benefits instead of something else. Normally, it's instead of wages. So workers end up accepting lower wages in exchange for these mandated government benefits. Now, when you have the option of being an independent contractor, you can decide to forego those benefits in exchange for more money. Or in exchange for a more flexible uh, work schedule, right? You, 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 you—it's you, all a give and take. Now, of course, Uber and Lyft argued that employees want to be independent contractors, and that's true—they do. Uh, but the government of California claimed that that's BS that nobody wants to be an independent contractor, that all of these workers actually want to be employees and they're being exploited. And the argument was, yeah, why wouldn't they want these benefits? Now, of course, if they can have those benefits in addition to the flexibility in the work schedule and earn the same amount of cash compensation, sure, of course, why not? And that is what the court said. The court basically said, hey, Uber, nobody is stopping you from providing these flexible work schedules. You can offer all that and you can provide all these benefits. No, they can't. They can't do both. They can't afford to do both because they would have to raise the prices so much that nobody would call Ubers anymore, right? What, what, one of the most attractive features of using an Uber is the lower cost. Well, if the cost has to double because of all the extra mandated payments to the drivers, well, then a lot you know fewer people are going to end up using Uber. They're just going to use taxis or they're going to drive themselves or whatever. And so that means a lot of these jobs are going to disappear, which is what's going to happen. Instead of uh, the drivers being employed as independent contractors, a lot of them are going to end up being unemployed as employees. That's what's going to happen. In fact, the entire business model Could end up being destroyed. Because when you think about it, the way Uber's work now, you own your own car. Uber doesn't supply the driver with a car. You drive your own car. You pay your own gas, you pay your own insurance, you pay your own maintenance. But when you have employees under California labor law, I don't even think you could do that. I don't think you can require your employee to use their own car. I think you gotta supply them with a car, right? You gotta pay the insurance, you gotta pay. Uh, the, the gas, you got to pay the maintenance. I mean, I, basically what this uh, ruling really is going to do is basically turn Uber into another taxi cab company. You know, I mean, that's basically what they're going to be. I mean, maybe they won't have some of those rules uh, that, that that restrict taxi cabs. But if, if Uber now has to provide its drivers with cars, I mean, it's not going to be able to have all these people. I mean, a lot of people who work for Uber or Lyft these are part-time workers, right? Uh, maybe it's a second job or maybe it's a third job. And some of these guys, they, they could work crazy hours. Maybe the guy just works one day and he jams 15 hours in on one day. Well, under labor law, you're not allowed to do that. You'd have to have overtime and all that. So basically what they're doing is they're destroying uh, the, the, the ability of Uber and Lyft to actually operate. Now, so Uber and Lyft are appealing and we'll see what the courts rule. But if this if this stands, then I, I actually, I think that both of those companies will completely pull out of California. I think that if Uber and Lyft are required to uh, make all the independent contractors employees under the current labor laws that exist in California, and I understand these laws because I do employ people, or I did for a long time before I sold my business, but I employed a lot of people in the state of California for a long time. I think that if this is not overturned, then Uber and Lyft are just going to cease to exist in that state. So all that would have happened was in the name of trying to protect the drivers and get them a better deal, they're just going to protect them out of the entire opportunity because they are choosing to be independent contractors. Because if they didn't make that choice, then they wouldn't work for Uber. I mean, they know the deal going in. Uber doesn't put a gun to anybody's head and say, hey, drive this car or else. People make a decision. If they think this is the best use of their time, do I want to drive for Uber? If they want to, they do. They know the deal before they agree to do it. Now, would it be a better deal if they can have all that flexibility, all that freedom, earn the same amount of money and get those extra benefits? Yeah, sure. But that's not the deal. It's a trade-off. You can't have both because the minute you force Uber to supply one, then you lose the other because the economics don't work. The consumer will not pay a price high enough to make it possible because Uber and Lyft have to compete with other alternative forms of hired transportation. And, uh, you know, And and, and nothing the court can do is going to change that dynamic. But again, all you have is another example of these do-gooders in government that think there's a problem that needs a solution. And what they do is they create a problem where one didn't exist. Uber is actually providing a solution to a lot of people. And the government is going to interfere with that. Now, ironically, I still think that Uber and Lyft are not charging enough money. I mean, I think that investors, the shareholders are subsidizing these low prices. I actually think that Uber isn't even profitable with the prices they have now. I think they need to raise prices, but they're not doing that because they're afraid that if they raise prices, they're going to lose riders. So they want to maintain the momentum of growing their customer base because that's what the shareholders want. So the stockholders are subsidizing these losses, but at some point they have to raise prices anyway. But if they can't even make a profit... With all these drivers as independent contractors, it'll be that much harder to try to generate an actual profit if these drivers were going to be employees. So the the whole business model will be destroyed and all of these opportunities will be eradicated by the do-gooder politicians that are supposedly representing uh, the drivers and the workers. And really what they're representing is big labor unions or the taxi cab companies or other businesses that are threatened. By Uber and that have to compete with Uber. And they're the ones, those are the driving factors behind these lawsuits and the the, the attempt uh, to basically drive Uber and Lyft out of business. I mean, maybe they think, well, we'll just force them to provide all these benefits so they have to raise their prices so they won't be as competitive. But of course, they'll end up driving them out of business. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking a little bit of politics, because there's a lot of that. First, let me start... With Republican politics, you know, Donald Trump had another uh, conference the other day or another press conference. He seems to be having a lot of these. And one of the things he's now calling for is more tax cuts. In addition to this, you know, payroll tax a holiday deferral, he's now talking about cutting uh, the capital gains tax or other cuts to the income tax, even uh, through executive order, not even having Congress enact these cuts but just through executive order. And of course, this is all the height of recklessness and and irresponsibility. You cannot simultaneously talk about cutting taxes and increasing government spending because government spending is taxation. Every dime the government spends is a dime the public has to finance, one way or another. Now, Trump likes to talk about tax cuts because Republicans like tax cuts, but Republicans also like smaller government. And lower taxes is the reward for smaller government. And so if you have small government, then you get rewarded with lower taxes because smaller government is less expensive than big government. If you have big government, you need big taxes. If you have small government, you can have small taxes. The they, they two go hand in hand. But what Trump wants to have is big government and small taxes. That's impossible. You can't do that. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You have, it's, you have to choose. Do you want to have a big government? And if you do, you got to pay for it. You know, now if you're willing to cut government, well, then you can reward the taxpayers with lower taxes. But Trump, it's all a lie. Uh, This is reckless, irresponsible. The deficits are exploding out of control. Government spending is exploding. How can you talk about reducing revenue? Trump should be talking about raising taxes. If he really wants all this government, if he really wants all this welfare, he needs to pay for it. Now he thinks, The Fed will pay for it. He thinks, well, it's okay, We'll just cut taxes and we'll let the Fed print money. As I've been saying on this podcast, the most expensive way to pay for government is through inflation, having the Fed print the money instead of the government collected in taxes. Fortunately, there is a way to avoid the inflation tax, and that is get out of dollars. Get out of U.S. financial assets. Take advantage of this dip in gold and silver prices, this dip in mining stocks, and buy, 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 and sell, sell, sell your U.S. dollars before the bottom drops out. You know, I thought one of the real interesting things, though, uh, or mistakes or gaffes, rather, that the president made, and nobody seemed to pick up on it other than me, but, you know, one of the other things that I forgot to mention in his executive orders was that he said that he was going to defer student loan payments. So part of the executive order is if you have a student loan, rather, not current students, you're, you graduated, you got a degree, and now you have loan, because you borrowed a bunch of money to get that degree, that you don't have to make your payments on your student loan. So he, by executive order, extended that grace period where you don't have to make any loan payments. And, and he was asked about that. And then Donald Trump said, well, it doesn't seem fair to make students uh, make loan payments when the colleges aren't even open and they're not even you know, accepting students, right? Which I thought was a, a crazy statement. I mean, because what does the one have to do with the other? What does people who graduated from college five years ago, 10 years ago, who are now paying off their student loans, what does that have to do with those colleges, whether or not they're open or closed today to current enrollees who don't have any student loans to pay off yet? Because you don't start making payments on your student loans until after you graduate. So none of the people that are currently going to college, and who are affected by whether or not college is open or not, none of those people have any student loans to pay off yet. They haven't started paying. The only people who are making payments were people who had already graduated. And so for them, it doesn't matter whether the schools are open or not. Or not. But then it occurred to me, the only reason that Donald Trump would make that statement, right, that it's unfair for the students to pay their loans if the colleges aren't even open— is if Donald Trump believed that the loan payments were going to the colleges, which he must believe, right? Because, hey, why should the students send money to the colleges when they're not even open? They're not even holding classes. And so it wouldn't be fair for the colleges to get all this money on these student loan payments when they're not even holding classes. But of course, that's ridiculous. <laughs> How could Donald Trump actually think that? I mean, he does. Now, maybe, uh, maybe it was just a momentary mental gaffe, but you know, when he's accusing Joe Biden of not being all there, you know, he shouldn't be making these mistakes. Now, fortunately for Trump, the only person that seems to pick up on this was me, because I didn't hear anybody report on it. And so since nobody of any significance listens to my podcast, I guess it's not going to cause the president a problem, but somebody should tell him so he doesn't screw up again, like maybe in the debate, that the loan payments don't go to the colleges. They got their money up front. The colleges get paid all the tuition up front. They don't loan the money to the students. If they did, they wouldn't even make the loans. They're not that dumb. The students are borrowing the money from the government. I mean, they used to borrow it from banks. Now they borrow it from the government. So the loan payments go to the government or the banks. They don't go to the colleges. They were paid up front in full. So I don't know. Maybe the president doesn't even realize this. He actually thinks that like the college's Self finance, like they loan the money to the kids, like they vendor finance it, like the colleges uh, advance the money and now the kids are repaying the tuition. To, no, the colleges aren't that dumb. They got all their money from the government. It's the government that's that dumb. The government guaranteed these private loans or made the loans themselves. Uh, so the president needs to really understand this because he looks completely ridiculous uh, if he doesn't understand something as basic who college grads. Owe their loans to. Right? They don't owe it to the colleges or the universities. All the money is owed to either the government or to a bank. And if it's owed to a bank, chances are the government has guaranteed that loan. Last point I want to make, though, about Trump is I know that he's now uh, calling Republicans, and there's not that many who are actually opposing his executive orders, but he is referring to presidents who are opposing his executive orders as being rhinos, right? They're rhinos. They're not real Republicans. They're Republicans in name only. But I guess, you know, Trump really doesn't understand the origin of the concept of of being a rhino. See, because what a rhino was, was a Republican who actually was like a democrat because they 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 voted for more government. They were you know they 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 talked about limited government and small government and tax cuts, you know, when they were campaigning and to get elected as a Republican. But then when they were in office, right, they voted like a democrat. They voted for more government, bigger government, more government spending, bigger deficits. So that's what made you a rhino, right? You pretended to be a free market small government guy, but then you really acted like a big government guy. Well, by that definition, Trump is the ultimate rhino. He is a complete and total rhino himself. How has he got the nerve to call other Republicans rhinos for opposing his big government spending and his big deficits? So now this is what a rhino is. If you don't support a rhino, now you're a rhino because the whole definition has been turned upside down. Trump is advocating big government big deficits, more spending, more inflation. The only real Republicans are the few that oppose him, right? Everybody who is backing Trump, they're the rhinos because they're claiming that they're Republicans and they're conservative and they want small government. They want individual liberty and they believe in the Constitution, But now they're supporting Donald Trump, who doesn't believe in the Constitution and doesn't want small government, doesn't want uh, individual liberty. He wants big government, big deficits, more welfare. That's what he's advocating. Trump did not use or abuse executive orders for the purpose of cutting government spending. He didn't eliminate government programs. He didn't repeal rules and regulations. He didn't use executive orders the way you would think a Republican would want to use them to get rid of all this big spending that the Democrats had put in place. No, Trump is using the executive orders to spend even more money, to, to, to make the government even bigger, to make the deficits even bigger. And then you have a couple of Republicans that call him out on it. And now the Trump's, oh, you guys are rhinos because you're not a real Republican. Because according to Trump, he is the only real Republican. And if you're a Republican and you don't support the big government government, money printing, big deficit policies that he advocates, then you're not a real Republican. And unfortunately, maybe that's true because now the Republican Party has been redefined as the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party has been redefined as the Socialist Party, which brings me to Joe Biden and his uh, just announced pick. In fact, just before I started to record this podcast, I found out that Kamala Harris is indeed the pick. She was, I think, the favorite. And she is now going to be uh, probably the next vice president, which probably means she's got a very good chance of being the next president of the United States. So we can have the first female president and the first black female president. In fact, she is the first female or black female to be nominated as a vice president. We have had two women, right, nominated. We had Geraldine Ferraro, Uh, by Walter Mondale, so she was nominated some time ago. And then more recently, we had John McCain nominate Sarah Palin. So there have been women on the tickets on the bottom, but they've never won. They've been on two losing tickets. And of course, Hillary Clinton was a woman, or is a woman, and she was on the top of the ticket in 2016, and that ticket lost. So, so far, every time a woman has been on a ticket, it's been a losing ticket. So this will be the first time if Biden and Harris win that we've had a woman on the ticket, either the top or the bottom, where it's won. and And then we're going to have a female vice president and very possibly a female president. Because as I mentioned before, not only is Joe Biden at 78 going to be the oldest person ever elected president, he's going to be the oldest person to ever serve as president. Because by the time Ronald Reagan... Finished his second term, he was younger than the age that Biden will be when he begins his first term. Now, Trump was older than Reagan when he was elected, but if he only gets one term, uh, then he you know he will be younger than Reagan was when Reagan finished his his second term. But you know Biden is going to turn eighty during his first term. I mean, so not only will he be the oldest person to ever be elected and serve as president, but he will be the only octogenarian to have ever been president. Uh, and so, you know, Biden is bumping up against life expectancy. I mean, if he gets COVID, right, I mean, he could be a goner. I mean, he's right up there. I mean, that's that's about how old people die. You know, the average age of people dying from COVID is about Biden's age. And so if he gets it, then we could have President Kamala Harris. So uh, she could easily be the next president. This is probably the hottest VP ticket that we've had. And in fact- What are the odds that even if Biden survives his first term, that at 82, he runs for a second term? There's a good chance that he would just step down. And so Kamala Harris would get to run for president, you know, as the sitting vice president after just one term. So she's probably very excited about this nomination. You know, I read, too, some articles where they were saying, you know, that this was kind of insulting to men because Biden ruled out any men, right? He said he was going to uh, nominate a, a woman. And in fact, he, he lived up to that promise. And he didn't just say he would nominate a woman. He said it would be an African-American woman. So he excluded not only all men from consideration, but all white people, whether they're men or women. So white women, even though they kind of pretended that you know maybe um, Elizabeth Warren was kind of, you know, in the picture, she really wasn't because, I mean, she wasn't a minority. I mean, yeah, she could pretend that she's a Native American, but Biden specifically said she's going to be black, right? So it, that was the only minority that he was considering. You had to be female and you had to be black in order to be uh, under consideration to be his vice president. And I talked about how this is clearly uh, discrimination. Right, based on race, based on gender, right? It should be illegal if you're going to apply the rules fairly because he's basically hiring somebody and he's hiring them specifically based on race and gender, which you're supposedly not supposed to do. But I guess if you're going to discriminate against men and against whites, well, that's perfectly acceptable in the world that we're in today. But the article that I was reading was about how this was an insult to men because Biden wasn't considering men. And the article has it backwards. It's not insulting to men at all. It's insulting to women. That's really what Biden was doing. He was insulting women. Because what Biden said was, I'm not going to pick the best person for the job. Because if I pick the best person for the job, it'll probably be a man, right? So I am going to eliminate all men from consideration. And I'm just going to consider women. That way, I'll make sure that I nominate a woman. See, that is what's condescending to women. That is what is an insult to women by saying the only way that I am going to have a woman as the vice president is if I exclude all the men from the competition. Because if I open it up to men, well, then clearly the women don't have a chance. And that's also an insult to Uh, to black women. Because by saying I am going to nominate a black woman, what you are saying is, well, if I was going to consider all the women, well, clearly I would pick a white woman because a white woman would be the best person for the job. So the only way that I can have a black woman is to make sure that I don't even consider any white women, because that's the only way that a black woman would win is if she didn't have to compete with a white woman. That's basically what Biden was saying. I mean, if Biden really was just determined to have a black woman as a vice president, if that was his goal, what he should have done was at least pretend that he was considering everybody, right? Hey, you know, I'm going to consider everybody. I don't care what gender. I don't care uh, what ethnicity. I'm just going to get the best person for the job. And then he could have just nominated a black woman and pretended that he interviewed and considered all these men and all these white women and that this black woman just happened to be the best candidate for the job. See, but he didn't even pretend that. He didn't even think it was necessary to pretend to find the most qualified person. He thought he had to go out of his way to promise, to promise that he would nominate a a black woman. And in fact, I think he made that promise before he even sewed up the nomination. That was a carrot that he was waving in front of a lot of uh, voters particularly probably African-American voters, hey, vote for me to be the Democratic nominee because I will put a black woman on the ticket. And so this is one promise that uh, Biden is able to keep. Unfortunately, the other promises that he keeps uh, to expand government and make government bigger uh, are going to backfire and they are going to end up hurting the most the very people who are expecting to benefit the most from these policies. We'll be